Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Samantha Silva about her lovely Christmas novel, Mr. Dickens and His Carol. If there's one book that defines the holiday spirit on stage and screen even more than in print, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol is that book. How many authors can claim a portrayal of a main character by Mr. Magoo? But how did that classic novel come into existence? That's the question Samantha Silva sets out to answer. As often happens in novels, the main character, when we meet him, has little suspicion of the journey ahead of him. On that unseasonably warm November day at one Devonshire Terrace, Christmas was not in his head at all. His cravat was loose, top button of his waistcoat undone, study windows flung open as far as they'd go. Chestnut curls bobbed over his dark slate eyes that brightened to each word he wrote. This one. No, that one. Scribble and scratch, a raised brow, a tucked chin, a guffaw. Every expression was at the ready, every limb engaged in the urgent deed. Nothing else existed. Not hunger or thirst, not the thrumming of the household above and below, a wife about to give birth, five children are ready, four servants, two Newfoundlands, a Pomeranian and the master's cat, now pawing at his quill. Not time, neither past nor future, just the clear-eyed now and words spilling out of him faster than he could think them. The exhilaration of his night walk had led him straight to his riding chair by first morning, without even his haddock and toast. He traversed twice the city in half his usual time, from Clerkenwell down Cheapside, across the Thames, by way of Blackfriars Bridge and back by Waterloo, propelled by a singular vision the throng of devoted readers that very afternoon, pressing their noses against the window of Moody's booksellers, no doubt awaiting the new Chuzzlewit installment, with its flimsy green cover, 33 pages of letterpress, two illustrations, various advertisements, and the latest chapter of pure delight by the inimitable Boz himself. Why, it was plain to him that humanity's chief concern, now that Martin Chuzzlewit had sailed for America, was the fate of Tom Pinch and the Pecksniffs and he considered it his sacred duty to tell them. And so Charles Dickens didn't hear the slap-bang of the door-knocker downstairs that would alter the course of all his Christmases to come. And now, please join me in welcoming Samantha Silva. Hi, Samantha. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Thanks for having me. Screenwriter, before you wrote this debut novel, um, how did you get started in fiction writing, and what can you tell us about your film projects? My screenwriting and fiction writing dovetail nicely, actually. This project, Mr. Dickens and His Carol, started as a screenplay almost two decades ago. I wrote it in in about a year, and over the course of the next several years, optioned the rights to the screenplay to four different companies, two in Europe and two here in the States. And as I always say, had some heartbreaking near misses with the big screen. I had other projects along the way. Projects came and and went, but 
this was the project I felt closest to that was dearest and nearest to my heart. And finally, honestly, out of frustration, I decided about five years ago to adapt my own screenplay into a novel. And I realized that's a kind of reverse engineering that so many people are adapting novels into screenplays. But I did the opposite. And it was quite an adventure doing that because I came to realize very quickly that the discipline of screenwriting is just about the opposite of the discipline of novel writing. Screenwriting requires economy, efficiency, and that nothing is superfluous. Everything that's written on the page is what you can see on the screen and everything else has to go. Whereas in novel writing, writer has all the jobs that there are on a movie set. You are not only the writer, you're the production designer, the set dresser, the costume designer, the casting director, and you get to explore the interior lives of characters, which you can never do in a screenplay. You can only know in screen in screenwriting, you can only know the interior life through action or dialogue. And so it took me a long time to give myself permission to put all that on the page because I was so used to screenwriting. But once I did, it was a marvelous experience. It took me a long time to figure it out, but I am very grateful that that's how it finally came to have a life, Mr. Dickens, as, as a book. That's really a fascinating um, way of looking at it. How did you actually make that transition? What did you did you work with other people? I mean, how did you figure it out? Trial and error, honestly. I I do I I have a small writing group that I trust very much, and and they saw many 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 drafts of it. But I would say that it took me three full drafts to give myself space and room to really fill it out and find the right amount of of texture and weather and interior life and 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 setting and you know all of those things that really make a novel vivid and come alive and each time each draft took me just about a year and you know I'd send it out into the world and not get the nibbles that I wanted and realize that it wasn't ready and go back to the drawing board and spend another year opening more doors and going down more research rabbit holes, which I had a great time doing. But but eventually, I think I, I hit on the, the right amount, the right amount of texture, interiority, all of those things that make any novel sing. And then it, it, it happened very quickly, the, the birth of the novel um, as, as a published piece. So it was a great, it was a, it was a great, I, I mean, I think in some ways I was really training, I was teaching myself how to be a novelist along the way, which is a lot about abandoning what you've already learned. And I am, I have to say, I am as a screenwriter, very much a structuralist. I start with beginning, middle and end. And I knew the story and I knew the story worked because I sold it four times. So the story didn't change very much in the adaptation from screenplay to novel, but everything else did. So what is it that drew you to this particular story? You said you felt closest to it and you would have to. I mean, a novelist always has to because there are so many drafts since it takes so long, especially the first one. Yes, I 
I had no idea when I embarked on this that I was also entering, you know, almost 20 year relationship with Charles Dickens, which to me now feels extraordinarily intimate. It began a friend of mine who was also a writer called me many years ago and said, I think we should write a ghost story anthology movie because about Dickens writing a carol because Victorians loved telling telling ghost stories, especially around the hearth. And I'd heard that that's how he came up with, with his carol. Well, I started to read about how Dickens really came up with the carol, and that wasn't true at all. And so we let it drop. We just let it drop. But I continued to read about him, and I had not been an early fan of Dickens. I'd read, you know, in high school, sort of the obligatory Dickens, but, but wasn't one over. He was not one of my favorite writers at all. But, but I started to read, and I not only, I not only read more of his books than I'd read, but I was reading biographies and letters. And it's remarkable how when you, when you start to feel close to a person that you're writing about, it also changes the way you read and understand their work. And so the war, his work and what I knew about him really started to, to speak to each other. And about two years after this original idea had danced in my head, I honestly bolted upright in bed one morning and knew the story start to finish like it had been handed to me in a dream. And that is the story that I wrote, that is Mr. Dickens and his Carol. But I would also say that one does become obsessed with the character that one's writing. It's, it's impossible not to. And in this case, Charles Dickens, who is such an extraordinary man in real life, he's brilliant and charismatic and prolific and entertaining, but deeply flawed. And I realized at some point along the way that I've been attracted to men like that all my life. And that he he was he was larger than life, and I was I was drawn to that. And I think also trying to understand him, trying to understand, connect to his flaws as a husband and father, because I also saw him as someone who had a heart as big as the world. And that's such an attractive thing about Charles Dickens, his philanthropy, his extraordinary empathy, being a champion for the poor, for the undereducated, for women, in, in ways that are contrary to how he lived his own life in some ways, you know, again, his own flaws personally. And I was very interested in the, that complexity, the complexity of the man. And so I, you know, I think as in, as in life, when we come to love people and care for them, we also feel close to their flaws and understand their flaws. And so this this book is very much an exploration of who Charles Dickens is, not as much as a writer, but as a man, as a human being. And I think I believed that you couldn't really write such an iconic character as Scrooge unless you had Scrooge within you. And I really wanted to, to explore that. And that was, you know, that was the, the sort of spark for the novel and for the, for the story that was a screenplay and now is the novel. So it's been, you know, it's been a long, intimate, intricate adventure with Charles Dickens. And I'm, you know, I still consider him a dear companion. <laughs> 
So when we meet him, uh, he's not exactly the quintessence of holiday joy. Um, tell us about his situation. This is your Dickens, um, where he is at the beginning of the novel and how you see him as a personality. You've already mentioned parts of that. Um, so um, maybe you want to focus more on his, his family situation, his economic situation, his writing and publishing, and whatever else you think is relevant to understand where he is at the beginning. Well, to talk about my Dickens, let me talk about, let me talk about the real Dickens first, because that was a springboard for, for the, the idea for the novel. So Charles Dickens, in, when, he, when he wrote A Carol in 1843, he was 31 years old. He was a literary rock star. He was the you know, Bruce Springsteen of his of his time. He'd virtually invented the serialization of the novel, and he was by far the most popular, most read author in the English-speaking world. He was extraordinary. People knew him on the street. Illiterates would gather around in gin shops and listen to people read his his serializations of his novels to them. He was also a great philanthropist and spent money, was not only responsible for his own father, John Dickens, who was a ne'er-do-well and did in fact go to debtor's prison when Dickens was 12, but but other relatives, um, close relatives, friends of relatives, friends of friends of relatives. He was generous to a fault and not only gave money wherever possible, but started charities of his own. He was very much responsible for, for, for the ragged schools and later in his life for Urania Cottage, which was a home for women who were poor and unskilled. But he also lived well beyond his, beyond his means. So at this point, he's never really dealt with failure. He's, he's, he's married to Catherine Dickens. They have more children all the time. They've recently moved from the more modest Dowdy Street to the grand one Devonshire Terrace, which is lavishly appointed. They lavishly entertain. They are living, in a sense, beyond their means. And so the true story of A Christmas Carol is that Dickens publishers Chapman Hall come to him and say, Martin Chuzzlewit that you're writing now is an absolute flop. And we're going to have to begin to deduct 50 pounds sterling from your pay on a monthly basis. And Dickens felt that that would ruin him. And so he came up with the idea of a Christmas book as a money spinner to try to get him out of debt. He wrote it in six weeks. It was published, I believe, on December 19th. The first run was 6,000 books, and those were sold out by year's end. There was a second printing, I believe, by New Year. So that's the true story. Christmas Carol, the irony, you know, the great irony that he invents this, this miser who has an awakening about his own greed and selfishness but that he invents that story in order to save himself from financial ruin. But I thought that the, that the real story, the great point of conflict, or what would be the inciting incident, what we call in screenwriting, is if his publishers came to him and tried to blackmail him into writing a Christmas book, and he would refuse. And that, to me, suggested such a wonderful conflict, because then Charles Dickens himself could become Scrooge because he would be under all this financial pressure. He would see all the, the spending around him and the Christmas parties and entertaining and the, and the toy shop and, 
everything, all of his responsibilities and his relatives as the incredible burden that they were, while he had this enormous pressure on him that he knew that he knew Chuzzlewit was was a failure. And so I saw that as a chance for him to go on his own Scrooge-like journey, which, uh, of course, would, would lead to him discovering the Scrooge in himself and, and the awakening that is so important and such, so much the essence of A Christmas Carol. It really works. I mean, it, it's, it's very obviously um, not a historian sort of journey about what happened and yet it's very much a novelist's journey about you know his how the novel might have come to be there are all these wonderful parallels which we probably won't go into because it's so much fun for readers to discover it for themselves but yes i i think it it really works for for him as a person and you mentioned that you read letters and all of this kind of thing was that mostly so you could understand um where your dickens could deviate from the real one or what what did you get from all the research what did you have to do i i read the letters to to understand who he really was and in, in, in many ways, my, my Dickens is, is, is an invention, certainly. Um, but I don't think he's over the top. I think Dickens was over the top. He was just, just an extraordinarily huge figure and had boundless energy and kinetic energy. His highs were very high. His lows were very low. I think it would be... You know, not a stretch at all to say today he'd probably be diagnosed as manic depressive, and he dealt when he went when he was manic. He was he, he was generous and entertaining and funny and theatrical, and a great mimic and a great storyteller. And when he was depressed, he had a hard time writing. He had a hard time producing, and he would famously walk the streets of London often twenty miles a night, which I think was a way of for him to deal with his, with the darkness, with his depression. So honestly, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to reinvent Dickens. I was trying to go as deeply as I could into the real man because it's so rich and it was so rewarding. And, and he's complicated enough. You don't really have to invent complications for him. All you have to do is mine them and look for them. For instance, I think it's extraordinary that when he was 12 years old, his father went to debtor's prison and took all of the family with him. At that point, you could even take your servants to to debtor's prison, but left 12-year-old Charles Dickens, the only member of the family, left out so that he could work at Warren's blacking factory, putting labels on bottles of boot polish to make enough money, it was almost nothing, to spring his father from, from debtor's prison. And Dickens was so traumatized by that, he never spoke a word of it until decades later when he told his best friend and biographer, biographer John Forster the story. He never told anyone. And I think that speaks to the trauma that he experienced that year that he was all alone as a 12-year-old kid. And we all know how much that informs, it informs Oliver Twist, it informs David Copperfield, it informs so many of his novels, and that he becomes in his life a passionate champion for the poor, 
he never blames anyone for the situation that they find themselves in, that befall them. He's an advocate for them, and he really believes that it's a world that is run by money and power and greed and selfishness that means to keep people down. And literacy, I mean, it's you know, also amazing to me that, that the English, the, the, the level of illiteracy when Dickens begins writing is, becomes astronomical. The, liter, the literacy becomes astronomical by the end of his life. And he was, and he was largely responsible for that. Not only did people love his stories, but the poor and working class of England believed that he was writing about them. And it was the first time they felt that, that this was someone who was championing, championing their cause and their lives, who understood them and loved them. And so that, that to me, there's so much, so much there to plumb. And what I've, what surprised me in many ways when I talk about the novel is how many people come up to me and say, you know, I love Dickens, but I never really understood the man. And so that's been extremely rewarding for me that, that people would come, I hope, after reading this novel to understand the man better. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yes, I think they would. Um, so tell us what you can about this Scrooge-like journey that you put him on, um, and perhaps a little bit about his marriage as well, because I think that's one of the areas where perhaps, um, as you mentioned, his his behavior in actual life doesn't quite match up with his ideals. His marriage, I think, was a complicated one, and he of course, takes a lot of heat for leaving his wife, Catherine, after 20 years of marriage and falling in love with the young actress, Ellen Turnan, who was his mistress and muse in the, in, at, the, at the end of his life for, for many years. And it scandalized everyone. It was scandalous. And people believed that Dickens treated Catherine cruelly in the process, which was unnecessary. And he lost, he lost a lot of friends because of it. But... I have to say as well that in the comp- it's, you know, it's very hard to judge people. It's very hard to judge people's lives. I mean, as you know, as is true of everyone, you cannot judge a marriage if you're not inside of it. And I think, to some extent, I was trying to really understand who Dickens was in that marriage, and I was also writing my fantasy of who he was in that marriage. My fantasy is of, of who he might be at the end. It's a, it's a moment of fantasy, and it's my fantasy of who Dickens could have been. I have to say as well that at age, the age of 18, he had his heart absolutely broken by Maria Biedenell, who was, a, who was a, from a wealthy family, and 
he was head over heels in love with her and she mercilessly dumped him. She told him after leading him on for two or three years that he just wasn't good enough for her. And Dickens was absolutely devastated. And he said often that in some ways Maria Bidnell was his first muse because she was the central inspiration for his writing life that he might succeed and prove her wrong about him after all. And she makes an appearance in the novel, which as a, as a comic character, but that formed him. That was, that was a, that was also a trauma, I think in his life. And the next woman he met was his wife, Catherine, Catherine Hogarth and married, I would say with a rebound relationship, we would call it now. And I, I think he loved Catherine. I think she loved him, but I don't think that he ever gave over to that relationship the way he had to Maria or the way he did to Catherine's younger sister, Mary Hogarth, who died in his arms, who lived with them for a while and died in his arms one night very suddenly after they had all gone to the theater. He thought Mary, who was also a muse and the inspiration for, for Little Nell, represented everything that was young and beautiful and good. And he was heartbroken, again, devastated that, that she died. But that brings up the question of the muse. And Dickens believed in muses, as I said. He really believed that, that Maria had been an inspiration for his entire writing life. And, Marie, and Mary, Mary Hogarth, Catherine's younger sister, was a muse for him as well. I think inspired him in her beauty and goodness through, throughout his life. But, but these are women who are projections. They're not real women that he has to be married to. And I was also, I think, going through or trying to understand what it is to be amused because I think I've been amused in my life. And I was um, married to a filmmaker. We were together for 23 years. And I think very early on in our relationship that I functioned as a kind of muse. And one realizes, the muse realizes very quickly that you're an idealized version for them. And what you, what you give up is your selfhood as a muse. What you give up is your agency and your realness, which, which includes your fine qualities, but also your quirks and foibles and needs and your own creativity. And so it's no surprise that a muse shows up in the novel, Mr. Dickens, when Dickens has alienated his wife and his children and his friends and just about everyone and feels alone in the world. And a muse appears who may just be the way back for him to his writing. But I think I was also working out this problem in real time. And I think writers often, novelists are often tackling in, in the work they're, they're writing a problem that they're working out in their own in their own life, and I think that was a problem for me. What is it to be a muse? What is it to be the wife? What is it to be a projection? To abandon the projection? What is it to have agency and not have agency? And I love one of the things without without spoiling the the, <laughs> the novel. I hope I certainly don't intend to intend to do that, but I love the idea that Dickens would would meet this woman 
and believe and invest her with the power of being his muse, but still deal with the question of whether the muse has agency and power of her own. And that's, for me, very central, not only to the novel, but to my own life. And I think because I've lived with this project for almost two decades, it's, I, have, I have an arc in my own story that's very much the story I was writing in the novel without realizing it. I think that, um, first of all, I don't think you've spoiled the novel at all by saying that. I think that's really interesting. Um, and there's a lot that you just brought up. Um, so I'm going to circle back a little bit and ask, because as you were talking, I was thinking first, you know, it wasn't easy being a Victorian married couple um, for either the husband or the wife, I would imagine, because the expectations were so unequal and um, so set in stone almost um, that it would be, you know, you'd have to get beyond your own preconceptions to form a satisfying relationship. It was probably easier to focus on on someone outside the marriage and idealize them, um, then have to deal with the reality. But also, what a difficult situation that must have been for Catherine to have her younger sister be, in effect, idolized by her husband. I'm I'm sure it was, and I feel great empathy for Catherine because I think she must have seen that he didn't love her and idealize her the way he did other women. And um, that is painful. And of course, you know, the Victorian marriage is, is this, this transition from, you know, marriages that are really about, about property and prosperity and joining forces economically to expectations that you would actually have, have love and comfort and companionship in marriage. I think Dickens was a romantic and I don't, I know less about Catherine. So she, she very much in the novel is, is a more invented character because I, you know, quite intentionally did not focus on her. I focused on him, but I think it was a complicated marriage and I think there were happy times in the marriage and you can feel that in the letters in the, in the early years in the, the parties that they had and the friends that they shared, but it becomes, but it becomes difficult. And they have, you know, they have child after child after child. And I think, you know, any, any, anyone who's a parent knows now that's, that's enough to drive, you know, drive two people apart. If you're having, you know, a child every year and you're losing children and it's very easy, it's very easy to, to lose also the, the, the relationship and the, you know, all of the joy that you felt in the beginning. It's hard when, when life presents you with difficulties all the time and daily life, the pedestrian concerns of, of daily life and children and, and money and all of those things. So I, it's, you know, it's so easy to project our own notions of marriage onto their marriage and, and, and judge it that way. And I, I try to be not judgmental of it and instead to try to have empathy for, for both of them. I don't, I'm not sure that the Dickens should have married Catherine when he did. Honestly, if you could unwind that he was, he was broken hearted 
when he met her and he was so eager to fill the hole that Maria Biedenel had left. I mean, she had really kicked him in the stomach, as I say, made mincemeat of his heart. And I think he wanted to get over that and get on with it. And Catherine was the next woman who came along. And so, uh, so I have that kind, of sim- that kind of sympathy for him. But, but she probably had different expectations, and I think she was very hurt by the way, by the way he treated her. So it's a, it's a complicated marriage. And I, you know, again, that's where I think the novel is in many ways a fantasy of that I had, that I had as well in my, in my own life for when, you know, when you're with a man, for Catherine to be with a man like Charles Dickens, who is this larger than life figure, who is easily lost and distracted and falls falls in love with the rest of the world and other people that you you desperately want that moment where as Scrooge does at the end of a Christmas Carol where you have lucidity and awareness of the beauty and the love in your own life and things that really matter and the things you'll try not to forget the rest of the year. One of the things that you mentioned um, before we came on the air was that um, there's a connection between Dickens' visit to the United States and the writing of A Christmas Carol, or there is believed to be a connection, whether it's true or not. Well, I've drawn the connection, so it's true for me. He, Dickens idealized, as, as he did so many women, he idealized America. He called it the Republic of His Imagination and was absolutely obsessed with going. And finally, in 1842, he and Catherine sailed to America and spent about six months there and traveled around. The Americans loved him really, really about as much as the English did. And he was widely read, widely plagiarized, which he was in England as well. And, but he was received like a conquering hero. Boston, he arrived first in Boston, Boston Harbor, and Peter Ackroyd has this wonderful scene in his great biography of Dickens where, you know, Dickens is sort of running through Boston, you know, ringing bells on doors and naming streets and pointing to things. It's almost like Scrooge on Christmas morning. You know, like, oh, my, I'm, I'm finally here, America, it's real, this is real. And he was so thrilled to be there. Boston, while he was there, renamed itself Boz Town, because he was, of course, known as the inimitable Boz, B-O-Z. And they gave, gave him lavish, extravagant dinners, balls in his honor. New York, when they got wind of it, decided that they had to outdo him and, you know, also put on just the most kind of extraordinary balls and galas in honor of Charles Dickens. He, he said, I've never been so sort of acclaimed and, fe- and feted in my life and loved it. But he also, he also felt that he couldn't breathe, that he was so hounded by people, that his celebrity was so kind of outsized that if he you know, sat in a pew, went into a church and sat in a pew to have a quiet moment, people would move to his pew. That they would, he did it, he and Catherine did a tour of the Great Lakes and he found people staring in his window while he was washing up and she was sleeping. They cut fur from his coat. They stole eggshells and orange peels from his plate. 
they they accosted him for autographs. There was just no no place for him to be quiet and be alone. And also, Dickens at that point and throughout his life was was you know completely obsessed with with copyright law, which didn't exist at that point. He was widely widely plagiarized in England as well as as in America, and it drove him crazy because he didn't make a cent off of it. And so every chance he got, he would lecture the Americans on copyright and, you know, the way in which they were stealing money from him. And nobody, nobody liked him for that. But he also, on top of it, he actually found the American people uncouth and ill-mannered. He thought there was spit in the street everywhere, that their table manners were terrible, that they were greedy and 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 selfish and only carried cared about power and money and politicians were the lowest of the low and he railed against America. So he so so they turn against Dickens as well and he starts getting terrible press. He goes back to England and he writes American Notes for General Circulation, which is a scathing travelogue about America. And the Americans, of course, hate it. So it's a, it's a terrible seller. And then in Martin Chuzzlewit, he writes a section where Martin Chuzzlewit sails to America and it's his opportunity. He takes it as his chance to expose Americans as hypocrites, bullies, and braggarts. And they hate Martin Chuzzlewit too. So it's that, it's that history of America, of Dickens in America and, and having his sort of infatuation shattered and Americans infatuation with him shattered that leads Martin Chuzzlewit to be a flop. I think in many ways, which leads to the writing of, of a Christmas Carol. So it's a bit of a zigzag, but it's a zigzag that I that I enjoy very much. It's a great story. So you are a well, you're a longtime writer, um, but this is your first novel. Was it fun for you to write about one of the best known novelists in uh, English literature? Uh, to imagine how he actually went about the process of writing a book. Yes, and there's so much known about his process. Actually, he he wrote about it. His children wrote about it. You know, he, he was he was famous for his mimicry, and he would meet people on the street, and everyone Dickens was a potential character, and he did carry in his pocket always scraps of paper that he called mem slips, so he could write everything down. But he would study, would meet someone, and he was not only interested in names and place names, but he was interested in the ticks in their face and the, what happened to their face when they spoke and what was the dialect. And he would, he would go home and practice it and mimic them. And he had a mirror in his office and he would often stand up and say the lines and see what would happen to his face when he spoke the lines. And so, so much, again, so much of his writing was kinetically informed and, and you know, from his virtually photographic memory. So, so that, that was, that was fun. I really didn't have to make that up very much. It was, it was really right there, but I, but I did have to imagine what it felt like to be Dickens, especially walking through the streets of London. I, I consider London very much a character in the book and it's so formed who he was as a man and as a writer. And so I, did spend a lot of time. I've lived in London three different times and I have a great affinity for it. And I also think it's 
not very hard to squint your eyes a little bit in present day London and feel Victorian London. It's still very present in the architecture, not, not in the, the, the smog and the terrible air and the smells, but so it was great fun for me. I knew the streets that he walked. I could, I could envision them very, very easily. And I've spent a lot of time walking the streets that he actually, that he actually walked, but really trying to understand what did that feel like and what did it feel like to live with the trauma that he lived with from his childhood and to see this poverty all around him and to smell to smell it and to smell what industrial London was and what poverty was and what the weather was and how the weather made him feel and how it was a reflection of his own interior life and interior darkness in so many ways so he and he also found of course great inspiration in London so all the Covent Garden the scenes in Covent Garden are so real there's so much wonderful wonderful journalism of the day that describe what the markets in Covent Garden were like and so it just it wasn't very hard to recreate that I really only had to imagine the Dickens I was writing being in those scenes. So it was, it was a great joy. It was really a great joy to do it. I, you know, if I did, hadn't had a deadline, I would, I would still be going down all those rabbit holes. So what would you like readers to take away from Mr. Dickens and his Carol? I think that Charles Dickens, the reason that we still read him and that he still matters is because he's as relevant as he ever was. I think that the the social themes that he wrote about are still among us. There's we we live in a time driven by money and power and politics and greed and selfishness and there are haves and have nots. There are people who are downtrodden and oppressed. That's what Dickens wrote about. And I look around and I think we still see that today. And so I think that his parable, The Christmas Carol being a parable of social redemption, is still, still speaks to us. He wanted what happened to Scrooge to be something that would happen for everyone, that we would all have a moment of awareness of our own personal responsibility and our generosity and our unselfishness and the importance of giving and being expansive and having our heart as big as the world as as he as he did so that that i think is a big part of what i want people to take away but on a personal level there are so many again readers who who've said to me oh i love a christmas carol and our family reads it every year and it's the thing that starts the christmas season for us and the thing that means the most to us and I hope that this novel is an echo, is some small echo of the greatness that is A Christmas Carol, because it is meant to be a reminder of our own big hearts and the way in which Christmas is a time that we do gather around the hearth and feel the closeness and to the people we love and the rest of the world and our responsibility to the world and hug those that we can who are close and feel gratitude for even the smallest blessings. 
It's a lovely holiday gift. It really is. Um, what are you working on now? Do you have another novel project? I do have a project that's in the very early stages, and I'm a bit superstitious about talking about it. But I will say that it is another historical figure, and it's a woman this time who I think is underrated and um, needs and, and deserves a novel of her own. So I'm really excited. It's been, it's been very hard to let Dickens go, like any relationship. I'm, I feel sad that, that I'm not living with him day in and day out anymore. But I also think that I've internalized him. I've internalized him as my own muse, the sort of underdeveloped masculine in my own psyche. And he will continue, I think, to feel like an old, dear friend to me. So I hope that continues no matter what I write. I'm sure it will. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. This has been a great pleasure. Thank you, Carolyn, for having me. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Samantha. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Samantha Silva about Mr. Dickens and his Carol. Find out more about her at www.samanthasilvawriter.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.